Well, good morning, friends. It is so good to see you sitting there in the pews. People looking back at me, I've been preaching in an empty room uh, for the last four months or so. So much better, so much more healthy to remember that it's brothers and sisters that we're reflecting on God's word together, isn't it? Not just looking out into the distance of the internet, not knowing where things are going. Uh, My name's Steve. If I haven't met you before, I do hope that I'll get a chance to say hi at the end of the service. Please come and say hi. Interrupt me if I'm chatting with someone else. That's more than fine. I'd really love to meet you before you head off uh, for the day. Uh, It'd be a big help to me and to you uh, if you had the Bibles with you and if you opened them up to the second of the passages that was read for us. Uh, You'll find that on page 1,147, 1,147. Um, If you've been tuning in online with us for the last several months, you'll know that we've been working through Paul's letter to the ancient church of Corinth, Uh, and today we're landing in chapter 5. Now, a passage like this is perhaps a little bit intense for our first Sunday, gathered back together. It's not a passage I would have chosen and planned ahead of to have had on our first Sunday back together, you know, sexual immorality, mentions of Satan, it's all pretty intense for a first time back. And yet, perhaps, in God's providence, it's a perfect opportunity to remind ourselves, to be reminded, that there may be things that are more damaging to our shared life together as a church than even a virus as crippling as COVID-19. There are things yet more damaging to our shared life together. And it's some of those things that Paul does address in the passage that we're having a look at together today. How about I pray and then we'll have a look at it together. Dearest Father, we thank you for sustaining us. We thank you for drawing us back together today to not only listen to you, but to do so in each other's company. Father, we thank you for those whose faith you've strengthened in the past four months. And Father, for those of us whose faith is feeling wearied and more stretched out than it has perhaps ever before, we ask that you might encourage and strengthen us both with the words that you speak in Scripture and the words of comfort and encouragement that we might speak to each other as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in recent weeks, I started watching the streaming show, uh, I think it was on Apple TV, called Morning Wars. Uh, Some, I think in the US, they call it just the morning show. Uh, It's set in the thick of the beginning days, the opening days of the Me Too movement. And it follows the fictional unravelling of America's premier morning show of the day. Mitch Kessler, who's the the male co-host there, he's the charismatic news anchor for this show, for this TV show, The Morning Show. And he enjoys the affirmation not only pretty much of most of the American viewing audience, but also just about everyone who he works with as well, at least so it seems. The series begins with him walking through the production studio, being warmly greeted and affirmed by just about everyone that he walks past, from the lowliest person there to the most significant and impressive. Everyone knows that the status of the morning show, the status and the popularity that it enjoys, depends largely on him. Until that is the abusive, his abusive treatment of co-workers, mainly of other women on the show, is publicly exposed for all to know. 
Mitch's pattern of abuse comes as no surprise to anyone else who works on the show, yet because the morning show's status and standing, popularity was tied up in its affirmation of its morally compromised star co-host, no one was willing to call out his behaviour or to challenge his behaviour. Instead, they all keep on affirming him as the indispensable star of the show. And in so doing, they make themselves complicit in an injustice that proves tragically destructive for just about everyone on the show as the season continues. And actually, in today's passage, we see a very similar dynamic of affirmation and complicity at play in the ancient church of Corinth. It's unsettling to read about, uh, to say the very least. Have a look with me at the opening verses that Paul writes uh, in chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. Uh, if you'd like to follow along, uh, some of the cross-references, uh, the other passages that I'm mentioning, you'll find them on the service uh, outline sheet there. Uh, and if you do have any questions of the passage or things I say, please do feel free to text them to that number uh, at the bottom of the page. We might have a chance to address those later on. But chapter 5, verses 1 to 2, as Paul sets the scene. He writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual, sexual immorality among you, and of the kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are proud? Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who had been doing this? Uh, the Corinthian church here have been exposed as being actively complicit in the kind of sexual misconduct that Paul says even the pagan world doesn't have any time for. And yet, uh, it's kind of hard to see it as the worst kind of sexual indiscretion that you could imagine, is it? Uh, a man in the church is openly sexually involved with his father's wife, that is, his stepmother. It's worth pausing for a moment to ask the question... What exactly is it that is so scandalous about this particular situation that's being addressed? The ancient world, the pagan world, was very tolerant of all kinds of sexual behaviour that we wouldn't give a moment to countenancing nowadays. So why was this particular behaviour so unacceptable? It's not likely the scandal of a difference in age... Men often married women much younger than themselves, so there's a chance that this wife and this man round about the same age. There's no reason to imagine that the arrangement isn't consensual. It's even possible that the man's father is no longer living, that this wife, this former wife, is a widow, perhaps. Despite our instinctive discomfort and distaste for what's going on here and what's described here, despite, despite Old Testament commands that this kind of relationship should never occur amongst God's people, it's perhaps not immediately obvious why this behaviour, compared to all the others that were practised in the ancient world, is so unsettling. Now, you might recall that the Corinthian culture was one that was completely saturated by an anxiety about one's status and standing, by a feverish desire to establish and secure your own sense of worth, your own standing in society. And in ancient cities such as Corinth, sex played a fundamentally important role, significant role, in how a person expressed their sense of worth, their status, their standing 
in comparison with other people. Uh, marriage relationships were primarily focused on the provision of a respectable heir for the head of the household, the husband, while pleasure and desire were most often pursued outside the family with mistresses or prostitutes. Men would often express their social status by sexually dominating other men of lower status, perhaps men who were much younger or who were slaves or just didn't have the social standing that they themselves did. And boys would engage in sexual relationships with men of greater social standing as a way of being initiated into the networks of adult power and influence. And it's likely that in this case that Paul is describing, this man being described in this passage is using sex with his father's wife as a way of establishing or elevating his own status and standing in the family household. Actually, we see this dynamic at play in many occasions throughout the Scriptures. I've jotted down there 2 Samuel chapter 16. It describes a situation in which King David's own son, Absalom, was making a play for his father's kingdom. He wanted to take the throne from David. And in order to undermine King David's status and standing in the eyes of Israel, God's people, Absalom set up a tent on the roof of Israel's palace, royal palace, where all of Israel could see it. And then he had all of the king's wives brought into him that he might sleep with them. And in doing so, Absalom was at the same time exalting himself and shaming his father, the king. And it's exactly that kind of behaviour that the Old Testament condemns when it outlaws a man sleeping with his stepmother. It's likely that that's exactly kind of what's going on here in this passage. It's likely that something like this kind of power play also helps us explain why the Corinthian church's response to this behaviour was so odd. Did you notice how the church responded? Paul says there in verse 2 that they were filled with pride. Down in verse 6, it mentions that they were even boasting in this situation, in this context. It also explains, perhaps, the, the comment about this behaviour being unacceptable amongst pagans. It's not that the pagans thought it was sexually deviant. In the pagan Roman world, the only, the most shameful thing you could do would be to shame someone who was of greater status than yourself. You could shame those who were below you. You would never shame someone who was above you, as a father would be to a son. In having his father's wife for himself, this man had perhaps taken over a household of great status and standing. Perhaps, perhaps even could the church have been meeting in his house? It's possible they met in the houses of the most wealthy. Whatever the exact social dynamic at play, the church were basking in the reflected glow of a church member who was climbing the ladder of social status, standing and influence. Now, perhaps the church wasn't all that keen on how this man went about exalting himself, but they certainly weren't worried enough to call the behaviour out and risk losing all the benefits that might have come by having fellowship with him. And that's the dynamic that was at play in the Morning Wars show as well. There was too much to be gained from allowing that star anchor, Mitch, to continue on in his behaviour 
to call it out would have unsettled the show. It might have threatened their own position. It would have undermined the popularity and success that they were enjoying. And so they said nothing. Likewise, the Corinthians' affirmation of this man was corrosive for the integrity of the church community that were gathering together. Uh, in fact, James, the brother of Jesus, critiqued a similar, similar failure of integrity in the churches that he wrote to, where those who had status and standing were privileged, where their bad behaviour was, people would turn a blind eye to it. Instead of proud affirmation, the righteous response to this behaviour, Paul says in verse 2, did you notice? Their righteous response should have been to mourn to grieve, to have been humbled and heartbroken that such behaviour could have taken place in their community, to have grieved of their own complicity in allowing a situation to get this kind of foothold amongst them. But instead of grieving, the Corinthian church had doubled down on their support of their man. It's a grievous thing, isn't it, when the church, when we are willing to excuse wickedness and malice in the name of protecting and promoting our own brand. It's not unheard of for the church to act that way, is it? Should we not mourn and grieve, not rush to defend ourselves or excuse it, but to grieve that such a thing should be the case? It's never God's interests that are being protected wherever sin is either covered up or redefined so as to excuse it. Uh, last year, we had a group of people from church get together to reflect on the things that our church community most values. We were about to release it just before we went into COVID, um, and that put a delay to it, but we'll aim to do that uh, either very at the very end of this year, beginning of next year. But one of the things that came out in people's reflection of what they most valued was integrity in the way in which we conduct ourselves as a church community. A concern that what we proclaim is aligned with how we conduct ourselves. And it was that very value that was nowhere to be seen amongst the Corinthian church community. Rather than self-justifying affirmation, Paul insists that it is only clear-eyed judgment that can ultimately cure the Corinthian community's compromised integrity. Have a look with me uh, at verse 3 of chapter 5. We often see affirmation as something that builds a community and judgment as something that threatens it. In this case, it's the reverse. Chapter 5, verse 3. Paul says, for my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus, on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. If the Corinthian church are perhaps too timid, or too complicit, or too socially risk-averse to shame the offending man... Paul certainly isn't. Paul sees the true nature of the situation with horrified clarity. So much so that he'll even claim the name of the Lord Jesus himself 
in passing down his judgment against him. He judges this man in the name of the Lord Jesus. That is his claiming that Jesus would affirm his judgment of this man. All that's left for the Corinthians to do is to enact the judgment that Paul himself has already passed down and announced. Now, Paul doesn't simply issue a a face-saving press relief, distancing himself and the church from the private sexual proclivities of this prominent church member. Rather, Paul instructs the church to hand the man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. That's unsettling kind of talk, isn't it? What on earth does that even mean? How exactly might you even go about handing someone over to Satan? And what is this flesh that Paul imagines is going to be destroyed in doing so? Uh, Paul is here using the term flesh to refer to a way of life that is animated by our own sin-compromised wisdom and desire. Flesh here is describing that way of life that is animated by our own sin-compromised wisdom and desire. If this man truly and defiantly decides to live by the flesh, to be guided by his own wisdom and desires, then he can do so, but not within God's household, Paul says. Perhaps Satan will give him a couch to crash on while he explores living out his own flesh-driven desires and ambitions, but the church household is not to put him up and to support him in his endeavours. Now, there's no vindictiveness or malice in the words that Paul is speaking here. Paul's heartfelt desire is that this man might grasp we're living by the flesh, we're living by his own wisdom and desire, is ultimately going to be leading him. Perhaps this man will wake up to where he's headed and return instead to the household of his gracious heavenly Father once he's come to his senses. Uh, And in fact, um, 2 Corinthians describes exactly this playing out. Uh, I think the the words will be up there on the screen uh, that I'll read for us. Uh, This is a letter that Paul writes to the Corinthian church sometime after he had written uh, 1 Corinthians. And there Paul writes, If anyone has caused grief... He has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake." There is tender grace in those words, isn't there? This is not about calling someone out for the sake of exalting yourself by crushing them, but out of a desire to see them humbled and come back to the grace and mercy of the one who heads up the Christian household, God himself. The judgment that Paul had called the Corinthian church to execute seemingly did bring this man home to his gracious heavenly father, Praise God. How much grief might have been averted if the Corinthian church hadn't been so eager to affirm that man in the first place, but it addressed his behaviour at some earlier stage before it ever got to as dire a situation as it had come to. 
Uh, there's a caution here to remember, though, as we read these words and these instructions that Paul does give to the Corinthian church. This kind of judgment is never a solo project. That is, it's not something that we head off today and just think, well, who's someone amongst our church community that I can apply this to myself? Nor is it a decision that the pastor is even supposed to make on his own and then keep the reasons for his decision under wraps in case, you know, it'd be a little bit scandalous to let it out publicly. It's something only to be done as a last resort with much grief and in full view of the gathered church. And we're going to reflect on the pattern of judgment in the church life next week when we look at the beginning of chapter 6, which begins to unpack it in a bit more detail specifically. Paul goes on, though, to illustrate why it's so important for the Corinthian church to take action and not just ignore this man's behaviour. Have a look at me at verse 6 and following. Paul's unpacking here why this behaviour is something that the Corinthian church just can't sweep under the carpet, so to speak. Verse 6, your boasting is not good do you know that a, don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread of le, um, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth." Uh, Paul here is referring to an ancient um, bread-making practice, maybe some of you have been giving it a go yourselves uh, in lockdown, that was very common in the ancient world. Uh, Anytime a loaf of bread was made, the person baking it would take a little bit of that dough and put it aside to gradually ferment over coming weeks. They'd leave that little bit of dough to ferment for weeks and weeks. And then later on, when they next time they made a bit of bread or a loaf of bread, they would take this little bit of um, dough that had been set aside to ferment, called leaven, and they would mix that back into the new batch of dough in order to create the bread. This fermentation of of the leavened bread, the leavened dough, would spread throughout the batch of new dough, producing gases that would give the bread its flavor and aerated texture, so to speak. The old, old dough would be mixed in with the new and give it the same characteristics as the old, previous batch of bread. Now, in Israel's life, uh, every year at Passover, when the Israelites celebrated their escape from slavery in Egypt, you might remember this from our first Bible reading, they were to throw away all their old lumps of leavening dough. They were to throw it away as a reminder, a symbol, that they had abandoned their former lives, they'd left their old lives back behind them in Egypt and they were heading to a new life as God's people and leaving the old life behind. They didn't bring the old life of slavery with them, they left it in the past. And that's exactly the same idea that's being used here to illustrate how this man should have been behaving, how they should have been behaving as a church. The man's flagrant sexual immorality was reintroducing back into church life the kind of malice and wickedness that they were supposed to have left behind them. The man's unapologetic sexual immorality was a living, breathing provocation for others to also return with him to that old pattern of life that Jesus had freed them from. Get rid of your old pattern of living. 
the leaven of our former life. It is not to determine the character of our new life together as God's people. But even so here, Paul isn't simply promoting a general attitude of judgmentalism towards one another. Paul's vision isn't that we become a community of people who are always on the lookout just to judge anyone who comes across our paths. He sets some limits for how this should be practiced. Uh, Have a look with me at verse 9 and following, verse 9 and following. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Just as Jesus urged his followers to remove the log from our own eyes before worrying about the speck of wood in another's eye, So here, Paul is concerned about removing the enormous log in the eye of the Christian church in Corinth, rather than fretting over the various failings of those who are outside the church. I'm not going to delve into the specifics of each of the sins that are mentioned here, although it's helpful to do so. I'm not going to do that today, because in a couple of weeks, there's another passage that begins to unpack those sins in a little bit more detail and grapple with what we're to understand by each of them. So we'll leave that to one side for today and come back to that in two weeks. Paul's call upon the church to break fellowship isn't here being applied to just any believer either, any believer who bears the slightest remaining mark of these sins upon their lives. If that were the case, we may as all well just form an orderly line at the door and head out not to return uh, for the rest of the year as well as the last four months as well. Nor is Paul encouraging individual believers, as I've mentioned, to apply this judgment for themselves, as if they were to have a little application at the end of Paul's sermon, take out your phones now and try and identify three sinners who you can cancel your lunch dates with this coming week. That's not the kind of vibe that Paul is going for as he's giving these instructions. Paul is speaking about one who calls themselves a Christian brother or sister but who is unrepentantly bent, committed to baking into their own pattern of life these sinful patterns of behaviour that he identifies. Paul is speaking about someone who is actively pursuing a life that is leavened with the character of their pre-Christian days. To continue affirming a believer in that kind of situation would be to either actively or passively be affirming the life that the Lord Jesus has freed them from and to call them to live in the past. As a church, we mustn't do that. Not only for their sake, but also for ours. To do so would not only be complicit in endangering their soul, but it would be to compromise the character of the community that has fellowship with them. 
Uh, in coming weeks, uh, especially next week, we'll spend some more time reflecting on the complicity and the, the complexity, sorry, and the dangers of exercising judgment in our relationships with one another. There is a great deal of care that Paul urges upon us uh, were we to ever do that, and we'll reflect on that together next week. But as I mentioned with that TV show I've been watching at the beginning of the morning, Morning Wars, a sobering reminder that in some contexts, affirmation can be what is most corrosive and destructive for a community of people. And sometimes it can be clear-eyed, compassionate judgment that is the only cure for the good of the person themselves and those who they intimately are associated with. Paul calls us to leave, leave in the past our old leavened lives and to be together a new batch that is shaped by Christ's character, not our old ways of living. Let's pray that God himself might protect us from that kind of deliberate ingrained sin in our own lives and that we might have the grace not just to affirm others because it's easiest for us to do but together as a church to graciously care that we do not become a church that affirms injustice or mistreatment of others in any form or shape. Let's pray. Dearest Father, we do thank you as we've been reminded in this passage itself that the Lord Jesus is our Passover lamb. He is the one who has borne judgment for all our sin and failing and has brought us into a new life, a life that we share together with one another, a life that is given shape by yourself. Father, we ask that you would give us the strength by your spirit to live in the past, that way of life that might have leavened our old way of living, that we might instead be a batch, that is batch of bread, a, a community that is completely characterised by the life and the character of the Lord Jesus himself, who has redeemed and saved us. Father, we ask that you would guard us against affirming that which is displeasing to you and harmful to others around about us. Instead, Father, strengthen us and give us the grace to care for one another with all seriousness, longing and dependent upon the knowledge that it is only in returning to you for forgiveness and grace that we can ever continue as your precious and chosen people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our friends, we're going to celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper together uh, in a moment. Um, Heath is going to come and lead us in a time of prayer. Uh, and then after that, we'll come and share in the Lord's Supper. Thanks, Heath.